Hi, my name is Bob Brooks, host and moderator of Long in the Tooth. This is a podcast primarily for late career dentists who are interested in doing a great job with their practices currently and also in planning for a transition of their practices to new ownership in the future. Our vision for the podcast is to be an educational format, not salesy at all. If you have been directed to join this podcast by a member of the dental industry in the United States, please thank them. This is going to benefit you. These are educational presentations that will hopefully help your profitability, your peace of mind, and your planning for the future as you are considering transitioning your practice to new ownership. This is Bob Brooks with Long in the Tooth podcast, especially for late career dentists. And I'm pleased to have with me today our special guest, Jason Wood. Jason is an attorney who serves uh, dental clients throughout the United States, and he speaks and a lot. And uh, it's my understanding that his company has served over 7,000 dentists. And I'm excited to have, have you on today, Jason. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you. I appreciate uh, being here. Yeah. Well, let's get started here. Uh, we've got a few episodes to do together. And in our first question of the day today is, what legal issues are practice owners being faced with these days? Maybe let's start off with PPP and EIDL and those things that are related to the pandemic. Right. Well, obviously, we've, we've experienced some quite interesting things over the last uh, year and a half. Uh, we had the the initial rush by older practice owners to try to sell. We've dealt with, uh, you know, drops in revenue and how does that uh, work with lenders? You know, we've, we've experienced some quite uh, unique issues, if you will. Uh, and so PPP and idle is just one of those, uh, those issues that we're being faced with. And it's always good that, uh, was it, was it Reagan who said, uh, you know, the only, uh, I don't know, but basically the, the only uh, person that you couldn't really trust would be the federal government to act quickly. And um, so we're dealing with uh, federal government funds and for a long period, uh, advisors, we were kind of figuring out on our own what to do with PPP, what to do with IDLE. And, and finally, late in 2020, uh, the SBA came up with some guidelines and uh, it was, it was quite interesting, but you know, we've, we've passed that hump now. And basically the, what happens for most of our clients is if they have not been given for forgiveness and, and some banks are still uh, having an issue with this, but um if the forgiveness process hasn't been started and a seller is trying to sell their practice, what we do is we work with the bank that has given, that gave the PPP loan and we work, we use, we have to go through some documents with that bank and escrow the PPP funds to allow the transaction to go forward. Um, that still can trip people up, uh, but we try to get ahead of it to make sure that it's not 
uh, delaying closings or anything like that. The idle loan actually is a little bit more cumbersome. Um, and luckily, not as many doctors have actually used the idle loan, but with the idle loan, uh, unlike the PPP, there is a requirement to, to pay that off. Um, and that can frustrate some sellers at, at times. But for the most part, what sellers need to know is if you haven't been given forgiveness, we need to escrow those funds until the bank is ready to give that forgiveness. So. Got it. Well, I know uh, when I hosted a IBBA hosted International Business Brokers Association hosted a webinar that I was a moderator of with some of the top lenders in the country last year when we were going through that uncertain period. There were all sorts of thoughts of, of how things were being done. I remember uh, the uh, that some banks were actually allowing practice sales to occur without forgiveness. And then others, uh, there's a regional bank here that operates in Ohio and surrounding states, and they completely discontinued practice acquisition loans. And the rep said, Bob, can you send me some, send me some information so I can convince my bosses to let us <laughs> go back to making loans and, uh, and everything in between. But it, it, is it correct to say that the government does, does not, they don't have security on the PPP loans. They don't have a uh, secure position in anything. They don't have a mortgage or they don't have collateral of anything of the practice. So theoretically, uh, it seems like why would a buyer or buyer's lender care? Great. That's a great question. And that's, that's something that we've always stated. Um, from a seller's perspective, though, the, the biggest, I guess, stick that the government has is, look, if you don't comply, we don't have to provide forgiveness. And so it's more of a protection of the seller. But you're absolutely right. From, from the buyer's perspective, there's no attachment. It doesn't impact the buyer at all, unless, and I will say this, unless the buyer is acquiring stock. Um, if they're buying into the existing corporation or uh, LLC, or they're buying completely that LLC or that corporation, then there would be an attachment, if you will, because the PPP would be attached to that entity. Got it. Yes, that makes sense. What percent of practice transitions do you think might be, in your experience, would be stock sales versus asset sales? Oh, gosh. I, I would wish it would be none, but right. um, it seems like that the further east you go, um, in the country, the more of a percentage there is in stock sales. Now, under, I mean, understand that it's still a, a minority, but it, it does tend to take place. Uh, and then the other uh, major issue that we see are sellers that are still C-Corps. They tend to be using, I mean, obviously if a seller is still a C-Corp, they're not using the, the best advisors in, in my opinion. Um, because there's literally no reason for a seller to remain a C-Corp anymore. But um, we have to get creative sometimes. And so what we are doing with stock acquisitions is we are 
okay, fine, this is the only way we can go forward, then this is how we're going to move forward. We're going to have a de minimis amount associated with the stock with the vast majority of the purchase price going into personal goodwill. That is completely legitimate from a legal standpoint, um, but it allows the buyer to do the write-offs associated with the personal goodwill as opposed to 100% going into stock, which they can't write off. So it's not the best situation. Um, and there are obviously negatives associated with purchasing stock. You, you have your, as a buyer, you're assuming all the known and unknown liabilities. You know, you're dealing with a continuity with respect to the employees uh, and the, the negatives that may be associated with that. So it's definitely not the recommended vehicle, but if that's the only way to do a transaction, then we need to get creative. Got it. In general, with practices that are not even selling, just ongoing practices, what are some of the legal issues that you see practice owners running into? What about with staff? Are there employee issues that come up that are somewhat common? Um, well, in the last two years, yes. Um, there's this huge gray area of, at least what we hear from our clients is, I've got a staff member who has been out, doesn't want to come back as a result of COVID because of the fears, what am I supposed to do? Um, because if I terminate, uh, then I run the risk of getting into issues with respect to you know, wrongful termination, uh, not to mention the fact that there's also a PPP component associated with that, um, which again, as time goes on, it's a, it diminishes. But um, so we're running into unique issues regarding employment law, um, but we're also running into, quite frankly, people not wanting to work because they're making a ton of money off the government. And so that has been by far and large the biggest complaint of our clients is I can't find hygienists. I can't find DAs. I can't find front office. Uh, you know, I'm... I'm I can't move on with my practice because I can't find the support staff. And so we've seen a, the inability to find new staff members, but B uh, relatively um, and, and significantly uh, higher payments associated with those staff members because they have to bump up salaries in order to get these people to work. So Again, this too shall pass, um, but right now we're in the heart of it um, and, and thick of it. And it's definitely one of the biggest issues that, that we are seeing um, with respect to being able to bring the practice back to you know, pre-COVID numbers, because it seems like the patients are coming back by far and large. There's, there's definitely pockets uh, of the country where maybe the practice has a um, older than normal uh, patient population. We've seen uh, those types of practices maybe either delaying treatment or they, they still have a suppression of their, um, their post-COVID numbers in relation to their pre-COVID numbers. But um, that staff above all seems to be the biggest issue for, for clients right now. So. Are you seeing, this is not a legal question, but 
Are you seeing a widespread shortage of employees throughout the country or is it more confined to one area? Because I know in Ohio, we certainly are experiencing huge shortages, especially with hygienists. I would say that it is relatively um, spread out in terms of the inability to find new employees. What, and, and this is just, uh, you know, I've got no basis or statistics for this, but it, in a weird way, in areas that have res resisted, if you will, um, the vaccinations, it also seems like those same people were willing to come back to work over, you know, a shorter period of time, and they weren't necessarily willing to live off of the government teat, if you will, um, for as long as other pockets of the uh, population have been. So it's, uh, I, I can't provide you statistics, but just based upon what we have seen, it seems like those practices that are in those areas that um, maybe more red, if you will, than blue, have been able to have the employees come back um, over a shorter period of time. I have seen the, the most hesitancy, if you will, in um, areas of the country where the, they're extremely blue. California, Massachusetts, New York are those same um, jurisdictions that have struggled to get back employees um, that have also seen in some instances just the continued suppression of um, revenues because patients haven't come back as well. So um, again, it's just conjecture on my part, but I have seen that based upon our um, client base. So, have you seen that the staff shortages are tripping up some practice transition plans as, you know? Absolutely. And we've, we've seen, gosh, just in the last week, I've had two or three practices where um, the doctor was getting ready to sell um, or was in the process of selling. And then, boom, a hygienist, I'm, I'm done. Um, or I'm not done. I'm moving to another um, practice because they're paying me two, three, four, five dollars more an hour. Uh, and we've seen that. I mean, I would say it's relatively constant that we are dealing with at least a few transitions per month where that's been a problem. And that has not historically been a problem. We haven't seen these uh, staff members jumping ship because all of a sudden they're getting a huge increase in, um, in hourly or in compensation. Uh, but because of the staff shortage, it seems to be becoming more and more prominent of an issue. Mm -hmm. What uh, effect has uh, what we've experienced the last couple of years had on associates, general liabilities of the practice, partnerships. Can you think of anything off the top of your head that has uh, been impacted uh, through this time period that we've been going through recently? Well, that's actually been one of the interesting, I don't necessarily want to call it right spots, but so we have had 
almost a full generation of dentists who have been trained, who have been taught that, and, and I may be oversimplifying this, but practice ownership is risky. You have a lot of student loans and therefore you should go corporate. And corporate is where you're going to be able to make money. And as a result, we, we basically now have a large minority of dentists who thought that the way the ticket out of debt was through corporate dentistry because they were going to be making $150,000, $175,000. And that would help them pay off debt. Um, that's what their practice management teachers were telling them. That's what their professors were telling them. Lo and behold, those same practice management professors were probably associated or linked to some DSO. Um, it's extremely frustrating. But the bright point in all of this was that associates who thought that they were comfortable, who thought that they were protected, when in reality they weren't uh, having these associateships, finally have been realizing huh, yeah, maybe, maybe working for someone else isn't jobs, isn't security, isn't career security. And so we've seen this relatively large influx of doctors who had never considered practice ownership before, uh, in, in my opinion, foolishly, uh, are now coming into the marketplace looking for praxis and realizing that maybe what they were told wasn't the truth. And they're realizing how much more money they can make in practice ownership. Uh, and so that was, that was quite an interesting um, change of events, which I, I hope continues, but I don't know if it's a blip um, or if we, are, if we are gonna experience kind of a, a, a revolution, if you will, of these younger doctors realizing practice ownership is the way to go. Um, but, um, that for me has been the, the most interesting thing, um, associates in general, the same issues for, for, um, owners, uh, you know, keeping and maintaining good associates. Um, what we have seen is a pulling back slightly of private owners who are willing to bring on associates. They have switched to more of a senior associate model where they are, they want to make sure that that associate has five years of experience or not, because they're just, they've been tired of the, the churning, the, you know, coming into the practice, leaving the practice with these younger associates, or they don't really have the skill set needed um, to be able to perform in, in these practices. So we've seen a, a slight change in owners in looking for more um, senior associates as well. So, um, but I do remain hopeful that these younger doctors will see um, that practice ownership is actually the less risky way of, of having a career and it will get them out of debt over a shorter period of time, so. For sure. Jason, thank you so much for sharing with us on this episode of Long in the Tooth today. And if listeners would like to get a hold of you, could you please share your contact information? Uh, sure. Uh, my email, jason at dentalattorneys, that's plural, dot com. Uh, my um, 800 number is 800-499-1474. 
And then if you want to look up articles or look at podcasts or anything else, um, then you can go to our website and that is dentalattorneys.com. Bob, I really appreciate uh, being on this. Uh, this is, this has been great. Thanks, Jason. We'll catch you in our next episode.